0: Good evening. evening. Welcome to the InnoPrap Free Library. My name is Kobina Safo. I am a librarian here at InnoPrap Free Library, and I'm from Ghana. (laughs) (laughs) The InnoPrap Free Library is honored to host Ms. Taye Selassie. Our guest tonight is no stranger to the city of Baltimore. Her her twin sister, Yetsa, did her master's in public health at the Johns Hopkins University. Ty's best friend at Oxford University, where she studied international relations, is Baltimore's own Westmore. And her favorite TV program of all time is The Wire. (laughs) Thierry Selassie is an uncommon talent. Her exquisite first novel, Ghana Must Go, has been called elemental, meditative, and mesmerizing by Sapphire. Best selling author Elizabeth Gilbert calls her a writer with staggering gifts and extraordinary sensitivity. Publishers Weekly says Ghana Must Go is reminiscent of. Jhumpa Lahiri, but with even greater warmth and vibrancy. & Nobles has selected the book as part of his Discover Great New Writers program. Introducing a powerful, elegant, and stirring new voice, Ghana Must Go is a real and beautifully rendered story of the importance of our roots and how, we shared, uh, how our shared history binds us. In a sweeping narrative that takes us from West Africa to New England and to London, Selassie reminds us that the pain and joy of family is both universal and unique, and that the stories we share with one another can open the door to a new future. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Tayyip Selassie.
1: Baltimore (laughs) I'm so happy to be here my flight from Asheville was delayed um, six hours yeah that's what I said I was like wow Delta really today thanks my cell phone died a sudden and unexpected death (laughs) and for a little while I thought I wasn't gonna make it but here I am and I'm delighted to be here to read from um, this my very first novel, My Newborn Baby. I, as um, Kwame said, am so at home in Baltimore. My sister has called Baltimore home for over five years now. And we've watched the city transform itself as we ourselves have been transformed. And so we, both of us, I'm speaking in the first person plural as twins are wont to do. Um, we, I think, feel a particular tie to this city because it's tied to a particular time in our lives. And even as my sister gets ready to go on to her residence, I'm sorry, her fellowship in New York, we feel that we're leaving uh, huge parts of ourselves behind. So it's particularly poignant and special to be here in Baltimore, not least because Marsha brought crab cakes (laughs) so I was on Marsha's amazing are you Marsha Marsha thank you (laughs) when Marsha was finishing with the guest before me she said the next time I see you I'll bring you a crab cake and I didn't know that we were live so I was like can I get a crab cake and then she said you can get a crab cake if you come to Baltimore I'll I'll give you crab cakes and of course I um, never won to turn down a crab cake. I was like, well, I'll be in Baltimore at 6.30 on Thursday, the 14th of March, (laughs) not thinking that I would really end up with crab cakes. But thank you, Marcia. I really appreciate it Um, more than I can say. So when I was speaking with Marcia, we were talking about women and how one of the hardest things for strong women to do is to be vulnerable. And after that conversation, I began contemplating how women are represented in this novel, given that strong women play such an integral role in my life. My mom, my surrogate moms, my aunts, my sisters are so fundamentally important to me that I can only hope that I um, did their womanhood and their strength justice in this text. But I'll let you decide. I'm going to read a few passages from the novel which are about women, and then I will open up the floor to questions. Can everybody hear me? Okay. So where I'll read from first is First I should say, has anyone here other than my dad read the novel? Oh, okay, 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 good. I won't, so I won't give too much away about the plot, but um, this novel is about a West African family. The father, Kweku, is from Ghana, he's a surgeon. The mom, Fola, is mostly Nigerian with a little bit of Scottish sprinkled on top. And these two, prodigiously talented people, as I'm teased for saying on NPR, (laughs) meet in Pennsylvania, marry, and have four children. Everything's going along quite well until one night, Kwaku suffers a crushing humiliation, leaves the family, and everything um, comes swiftly apart. So where we find Kwaku now, he has moved to Ghana. He's found a new wife, and he is reflecting on the difference between this marriage and his first one. So, like to hear it, here it goes. He considers. His second wife, Ama, is asleep in that room. Plump brown lips slipped apart, the plump inside pink showing, and he doesn't want to wake her. A wonder the change. Quite apart from the performances for himself and his cameraman, There is this new and genuine desire to accommodate his wife. It's as if if he's a different, kinder man in this marriage, which that other woman would argue is not his second, but his third. That other woman is lying, and the both of them know it. They were never close to married, though she'd lived in his house. He'd been desperate for warmth, for the weight of a body, the smell of perfume, even cheap ginette. The thing had gone bust when she'd broken her promise to leave the apartment that morning in May so as not to see Olu, who'd come for his birthday at last and who left at the first sight of June. With Ama, whom he married in a simple village ceremony, her incredulous extended family members watching, mouths agape. He is gentle in a way that he wasn't with Fola. Not that he was brutish with Fola, but this is different, for instance. If he raises his voice and Ama flinches, he stops shouting, without pause, like a light switch, she flinches, he stops. Or if she passes by his study door and coughs, he looks up, no matter what he's doing, what he's reading, Ama coughs, he stops. His children used to do the same intentionally, just to test him, to weigh his devotion to his profession against his devotion to them. By then, he'd moved the sextet to that massive house in Brookline, a veritable palace, although his study door, an original, didn't close. They'd loiter in the hall, outside the half-open door, giggling softly, whispering loudly to attract his attention, then peer in to see if he'd looked up from reading his peer-reviewed journal, which he wouldn't, to teach them. It was a logically flawed experiment. He'd have told them if they'd asked. His devotion to his profession kept a roof over their heads. It wasn't comparative, a contest, either or, job v. family. That was specious American logic, dramatic, married to a job. How? The hours he worked were an expression of his affection in direct proportion to his commitment to keeping them well, Well well-educated, well-traveled, well-regarded by other adults, well-fed, what he wanted and what he wasn't as a child. When Ama loiters noisily, and she is testing him also, Kweku knows, he marks a sentence and lowers his book. He gestures that she enter and asks if she's all right. She always says yes, she is always all right. And if they're riding in the Land Cruiser and she shivers even a little, he orders Kofi, who started driving, to turn off the AC, though he can't stand the humidity, never could, even in the village. They used to mock him, call him obroni, albeit for other reasons too and if he's watching cnn when she comes padding into the living room in pink furry slippers pink sponge rollers in her hair he switches the channel instantly to the mind-numbing cacophony of the nollywood movies that he hates and she loves and so forth attends church though he can't stand the hoopla Buys scented fall soap though he can't stand the smell instructs Kofi to make the stew to her exact specifications though he can't stand the heat, weeps to eat it that hot. He wants her to be satisfied. He wants this because she can be. She is a woman who can be satisfied. She is like no woman he's known. Or like no woman he's loved. He isn't sure he ever knew them or could that a man can know a woman in the end. So the women he's loved who knew nothing of satisfaction who, having gotten what they wanted always promptly wanted more not greedy never greedy he'd never call his mother greedy neither Fola nor his daughters at least not taiwo at least not then they were doers and thinkers and lovers and seekers and givers but dreamers most dangerously of all they were dreamer women very dangerous women who looked at the world through their wide dreamer eyes and saw it not not as it was, brutal, senseless, etc., but worse, as it might be or might yet become. So insatiable women, unpleasable women, who wanted above all things what could not be had, not what they could not have, no such thing for such women, but what wasn't there to be had in the first place. And worst, who looked at him and saw what he might yet become, more beautiful than he believes he could possibly be. Amma doesn't have that problem, or he doesn't have that problem with Ama. First of all, she isn't as smart as the others, which isn't to say that she's stupid, far from. He knows that people talk, that people call the girl simple, and he knows it's cliche, surgeon shacks up with nurse. But he also knows now that his wife is a genius, of a completely different sort than her predecessors were. She has her own form of genius, a sort of animal genius, the animal's unwavering devotion to getting what it wants, to getting what it needs without disrupting the environment, without tearing down the jungle, without causing itself harm. He wouldn't have guessed this a talent at all, but for those smarter women's gifts of self-flogging, self-doubt. Alma doesn't hurt herself. It doesn't occur to her to question herself to exact from her psyche some small payment of sorrow for all worldly pleasure, though the world demands none. But she isn't a thinker, isn't incessantly thinking about what could be better, about what to do next, about what she's done wrong, about who may have wronged her, about what he is thinking or feeling but not saying, so her thoughts don't perpetually bump into his, causing all kinds of friction and firestorms, explosions, inadvertently collisions here and there around the house. Her thoughts are not dangerous substances. The thoughts of the dreamers were landmines, free radicals, with them breakfast chat could devolve into war. Ama isn't a fighter. She comes to breakfast without weapons and to bed in the evening undressed and unarmed. She has no vested interest in changing his mind. Her natural state is contented, not curious. And so second of all, she isn't unhappy. This was a complete revelation. To live in a house with a woman who is happy, who is consistently happy in her resting state happy, and who is happy with him, not as an event or a reaction, not in response to one thing that he did and must keep doing if he wants her to remain happy, churning the crank, ever winding the music box, dance, monkey dance, but whom he makes happy, has made happy, and who's miraculously stayed happy, who has the capacity to stay happy with him over time? Never. He didn't know this was humanly possible, or womanly possible until 53 years old, when he packed up his tent and decamped to the master wing, but finding it too quiet, one day considered his nurse, and the rise of her buttocks, and the chime of her laugh, and the odd way she tittered and blushed when he approached and asked if she might like to join him for dinner. This is why he believes he loves Alma, because she said, thank you, I would please, and the same thing again when he asked her to marry him. She always says yes, and is loyal and simple and supple and and young because her thoughts don't explode over breakfast. He believes he loves Alma because of the symmetry between them, between his capacity for provision and her prerequisites for joy, because he finds all symmetry elegant and this symmetry quiet, an elegant kind of quiet here and there around the house. He believes he loves Amma, although he once thought he didn't, thought he cared for and was grateful for, but didn't really love her. And in the beginning, he didn't before he recognized her genius because he knows something now about women. He has come to understand his basic relationship to women, the very crux of it, the need to be finally sufficient, to know he's enough, once and for all, now and forever. This is why he believes he loves Ama. He is wrong. (laughs) So there we have Kweku's long-winded meditation on his second wife and her distinctions not only from his first wife but also his mother and his first daughter who, if you haven't guessed it, by my panther print leggings (laughs) is more of a dreamer woman than a contented and not curious woman. Not that there's anything wrong with the latter. (laughs) But I was certainly raised by the former and raised to be the former. And um, I remember when when I wrote that, I thought to myself, I wonder if some readers would interpret that as somehow sexist, as if I'm criticizing the dreamer woman for being what she is. And then I thought, well, if so, so be it, <laughs> because this is the way it came out, and this is what I know dreamer women to be. The second bit, however, is in the voice of Kweku's youngest daughter, who, because of his um sudden and tragic departure, he doesn't get to see grow up. The irony, of course, is that she looks exactly like him, as often happens in families um, and certainly happened in mine. and Sadie, the youngest girl here in this brief passage, is reflecting on an entirely different take on femininity altogether. Sadie's best friend is named Filey, who gets referenced um, as we start. Filey likes to call her a natural beauty. While Fola uses phrases like, you'll come into your own, in a tone reminiscent of, we'll find your hidden talent. But Sadie knows better, she isn't pretty. End of story. Her eyes are too small and her nose is too round and she hasn't got cheekbones like Taiwo or Philae, nor long slender limbs, nor a clean chiseled jaw, nor a dipping in waist, nor a jutting out clavicle. She's five foot four, solid, not fat, per se, stocky, pale, milky-tea skin, number four colored hair, neither tall nor petite, with no edges, no angles, she looks like a doll when she wouldn't have wanted. It isn't worth trying to explain this to Phile, nor to Fola for that matter, they wouldn't understand it, they're pretty, a state of being they both take for granted, through no fault of theirs, through the joke of genetics. Their empathy is bound within the limits of their reality, Sadie knows. They can't imagine it, not being pretty. A bit like, say, a woman might imagine being a man, can merely close her eyes and picture it, whatever being a man may mean to her, but can't, in fact, picture not being a woman would have nothing to draw on, however she tried. So the pretty woman's imagination is limited, absent reference for the experience of not being seen. Most of the time, she herself can't be bothered to sort through the reasons the world doesn't see her. It all seems a bit too cliché, melodramatic for a girl with her sarcasm and level of education. She accepts that the media are to blame for her bulimia, her quiet, abiding desire to be reborn a blonde waif, vigorously castigates Photoshop as a public health threat, has examined and condemned her childhood taste for white Barbies and so on. Isn't stupid, can see the thing clearly, but the fact remains she is invisible, unpretty. the sense of being looked at is new and alarming. Hello, Sadie stutters, flushing, offering a hand. na takes the hand, frowning deeply, squeezing tightly, queer, she says, Um, I'm Sadie, Sadie smiles, my name is Sadie, nice to meet you, but na is a, is insistent. Equia, she repeats. Sister Equia, it's you. Sadie laughs nervously, not following. I'm Sadie. That's my middle name, Equia. Na nods. Welcome back. Sadie thinks to clarify that she's never been to Ghana, but Na moves on to Olu and down the line. A second heavy woman in the simple black muslin with head tie appears with a large plastic tray piled with bottles of Coke, Fanta, Malta, bitter lemon. Fola tries again. Hello, Shorme, correct. The soft drinks are distributed with hardened eyes, pleasantries, introductions made briefly, condolences exchanged. We have prepared a small welcome, says Shorme. Please be seated. She gestures to the benches in a circle in the shade. And now, last but not least, we have Taiwo. Taiwo is the eldest daughter, Kweku's first daughter. She's a twin, hence her name Taiwo, which means first twin like mine. And here she is, we are almost at the end of the novel, and she is moments from a rather um, fraught confrontation with her mother about something that happened years before. The beach is almost empty the sun near its height, just the four little boys playing soccer without shoes, who smile pleasantly at Taibo as she appears between palm trees, but don't stop their passing or chit-chat in ga. She pulls off her flip-flops and walks down the sand, which is hard, whitish grey, piping hot at this hour, feels the rage start to cool with the new, damper air. With the salt taste and sea breeze and sound of the waves and keeps walking away from the boys from their laughter not thinking still heaving now dripping with sweat a half mile ahead stands a colonial structure what looks to have once been some grand beachfront house complete with terraces and pillars now abandoned to the sunshine a few miles beyond another village begins somewhere in her mind is the idea of escaping of making her way to the end of this beach, but the building distracts, looming darkly before her, the sand turning brown in its shadow ahead. It reminds her of that house that she hated, the sullenness, the ghosts of other families, strangers, long-dead Europeans, here plopped on a beach with the boats and the palm trees and few thatch-roofed huts someone's built in the shade. She stops to consider it, out of place in this picture, as they always felt, an African family in Brookline. As she always felt, late at night in her bedroom, the ghosts more at home there than she was, and laughs. The visual is laughable. This house on a beach in a village in Ghana, some white family home with its paint stripped away and its eye sockets empty, but here, still assertive, imposing itself. She laughs at the thought of her father in childhood, a child on this beach looking up at this house, thinking one day he'd have one as big as assertive, thinking one day he'd conquer some land of his own. Which he did, she thinks, laughing, those acres in Brookline on which stood that equally joyless old home, i e home as conceived by the same pink faced British who would have erected this thing on this beach, hulking, rock, a declaration, but without the immovability the faint air of dominance, the confidence or the permanence. He conquered new land and he founded a house, but his shame was too great and his conquest was sold, or sold back, very likely, to a sweet pink-faced family, the descendants of pilgrims, more familiar with dominance. Retrieved from the new boy, returned to the natives, to cabots or gardeners, reclaimed from the sighs. Poor little boy who had walked on this beach, who had dreamed of grand homes and new homelands, she thinks, with his feet cracking open, his souls turning black, never guessing his error. She'd have told him if he'd asked that he'd never find a home or a home that would last, that one never feels home who feels shame, never will. She laughs at the thought of that boy on this beach and laughs harder at the thought of the house that he bought and laughs hardest at the thought of herself in that house. 12 years old, still a girl, still believing in home. The usual thing happens. She laughs until she's crying with laughter, then crying without it, just crying, then sitting where she is, drops her bag, just stops walking, has nowhere to go, is a stranger here also. Had she any more energy, she'd likely go anyway, start running, waiting, hoping for some person, man, to follow her, but can't is too tired in her legs and her body, something seeping out the center, some last stronghold giving in within, so sits, in the sun, on the sand, sweating, crying, as one sits on beaches, but without the lover's cardigan. She fumbles in the bag for her American spirits, lights one, smokes it quickly, small, jittery motions. She clutches her knees to her chest to feel closeness, overcome by a grief she can hardly make sense of, the last time she felt this was midnight in Boston. Her father slumped over on the couch in his scrubs. That the world was too open, wide open an ocean, their ship sinking slowly, weighted down by the shame. What she hadn't known then was that it would be Fola to cut off the ropes, set the lifeboats adrift. Or that it could be Fola, not a father, but a mother. What she hadn't known then is that mothers betray So then, the thought that she hasn't been thinking, stepping at last into light after years at the edge of awareness, a shadow of consciousness, peeking, then hiding, when her mind turned its way. Dr. Haas has it wrong, as she's long since suspected. It isn't the father, or not him alone. It was Fola who sent them to Femi that summer, like two fetid calves, to the altar, not he. How has she missed this, the source of her anger, the rage without name, that she sent them away, that she shipped them to Lagos when she should have known better, when she must have known somehow what would happen, who he was, her own brother, her own family, for the cost of tuition, the thought in the open that mothers betray. And what happens to daughters whose mothers betray them? They don't become huggable like Sadie, Taiwo thinks. They don't become giggly, adorable little Girls, they grow shells, become hardened, they stop being girls. Though they look like girls, and act like girls, and flirt like girls, and kiss like girls. Really, they're generals, commandos at war, riding out at first light to preempt further strikes. With an army behind them, their talents, their horsemen, their brilliance and beauty, and anything else they may have at their disposal, dispatched into battle to capture the castle, to bring back the honor. Of course it doesn't work, for they burn down the village in search of the safety they lost every time, Taiwo knows. They end lonely, desired and admired, and alone in their tents where they weep through the night. Did you just say, Whoosh. That's how I felt when I wrote it. I was like, Whoah. Is she done yet? <laughs> Someone's phone? No one's phone. Anyone's phone? Okay. <laughs> so three different women in um of of the many in in Ghana Moscow. um and thank you Marsha for even turning my attention towards this question of how women and strong women are represented in the novel. Um, I would love to hear your questions, your thoughts, your reactions, anything at all that you'd like to share with me. Yes, sir. But the only thing is, since you know my name, it's Taye, you have to tell me yours.
2: I'm Bill Mangana. Hello, Bill Mangana. Please. Thank, can I give you this... Uh, Well.
0: Okay, and
1: I'll, I'll repeat the questions as well, if, if, if need be.
0: I just want to know, where did you find that wife?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bill, you don't find that wife on stage, Jeanette. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> and, 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 and genuinely speaking, if you're... Bill, Bill's question was, where do you find that wife? That first wife, the one that's happy, always happy, in her resting state, happy. And I want to tell you, Bill, I want to tell you this from my heart. Not in Nigeria. (laughs) Some parts of Ghana, not my family's house. Not in New York.
0: (laughs) And not here. I think your characters are very very well drawn. I have a granddaughter who is about 19. I think about what she's gonna do when she wants to find a guy that'll make her as well prepared. Prepared <laughs> as i thank you. Thank you.
3: My name is Indy. And the question I'd like to ask you is where did you find all these characters? You're so young. How did you find and know all these characters of
1: different ages? Um Indy? Yes. Okay. Is that short for something? The the honest answer is I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you where I found all these characters in a shower in Sweden. Mm-hmm. I was, as you, as you may have heard, I was at a yoga retreat in the Swedish countryside. Um, I will never in my life return to the Swedish countryside in October. It's freezing cold. Who knew? And um, we got up every morning at around 5 a.m., to do meditation, and then yoga, and then farm the hardened tundric earth. And um, on one such morning, I was in the shower, probably contemplating an escape from Ha, Sweden, and this entire novel, all six members of the Sai family, all the ancillary characters, their backstory, their present moment, their futures even, everything was there, um, what various writers call a doné. It was something that was given. And, you know, I have my own spiritual theories on um, who gave, but it was given. And I ran out of the shower and I said to my friend Kirsty, who had invited me on this yoga retreat for my 30th birthday, I found my first novel. And she said, where? And I said, in the bathroom. And she said, what are you talking about? (laughs) All of them, all of them. But of course, meditation retreats forbid um, electronics as well they should, because as I now know with my dead phone, it's very calming not to have any phones or laptops. So we had to leave the retreat in Sweden, first world problems to be sure, and take the train to Copenhagen so that I could write on something other than a little scrap piece of paper with a stubbed out pencil. Um, And there at the Admiral Hotel in Copenhagen, Denmark, I wrote the first ten pages of the novel, which remain in published form, almost unchanged. So that's where, literally, geographically, I found these characters. But Indira, in terms of your question about the um, the knowledge or what wisdom there may be in the novel, that's something I think, um, no, 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 I don't think, I know, comes from and exists beyond me. If I had an eighth of the wisdom that I think is contained in Ghana, Moscow, I would be the wife that Bill is looking for, but I am not. (laughs) (laughs) Just just asking. I am not um, nearly that wise, that calm, or that perennially happy, (laughs) which would suggest that um, to be a writer is to be a vessel. It's to be a vehicle its to be a conduit and when you are doing it well and doing and i don't mean in terms of writing well but just being well then you're just letting truth come through you and my work i believe my calling is just to tell that truth as i receive it and to tell it beautifully
4: good evening Taye. good evening my name is adeti kumbo
1: are you Old Yoruba? Lad.
4: i'm not i'm not I'm
1: Sorry, good evening.
4: <laughs> My name is Ade Tukumbo, Oladipupo,
1: Taiwo. Kind <laughs> I don't
4: know what that means. <laughs> I'm Ade Tukumbo.
1: It means, how's your twin?
4: That's my family name. My uh, family okay. name is Taiwo. We oh, didn't okay. have last names until the British came.
1: Okay. Well, we didn't have a lot of things until the British came. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: thank you for writing the book. Thank you for um, having the courage to create and telling African stories uh, in this world. Um, that's firstly. So thank you for what you've done and what you will continue to do. Um, I had a question. Uh, I have a very short attention span uh, because of the world we live in. Um, I typically buy books like this and don't read them. Um, <laughs> just because there are other forms of media that distract me. Um, but I'm drawn to this for a couple of reasons. Um, and I want, I, want to, I, I want to read this book. And When I I open up the jacket, it says, Kwe Kusai is dead. A renowned surgeon and failed husband. He succumbs suddenly at dawn outside his home in suburban Accra. Now, I'm a man. I noticed. And I like these driven dreamer women that you talk about. um, I understand them. But I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about this description of this man, Kweku. Um, because he said, he's described as a renowned surgeon and a failed husband. Now his wife is of Sade. Now the question that I have is that he's a renowned surgeon based off of whose terms. And he's a failed husband according to whose terms. Mm-hmm. Because Kweku is a Ghanaian. Is he Ashanti or what is he?
1: If you read to the end of the novel, you'll know. He, <laughs>
4: he's, he's Ghanaian. He's Ghanaian. He's and bad. Ghanaians are matrilineal, the men tend to be different. Fala Shade is Yoruba. Yorubas is are patrilineal. There's. A, a, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned or curious about the level of, uh, I guess, cross cultural conflict. Is is is?
1: Okay. I does Kwaku feel that he's a a failed husband? I should tell you, um, what what he's reading from is the what's called the flap copy on the inside of the jacket, which I should tell you is not written by the author ever. I know ever. it's
4: marketing, but I'm just, just well.
1: Well, no, I but I'm willing to let's go with it. Um, so this is just here. This is what the publisher writes and um. It's uh, you know, meant to. It's like a, a teaser for a movie. Yeah, it's which is a meant teaser. It, it sucked me but, in, But 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 wait, but wait, but wait. Right. I think I understand what you're saying. I think you're asking, can would we call Kweku... They called him a failed husband, but let me say, I would call him a failed husband too. Why? And and I'm happy you asked. Because if you want to know if I think he's a failure on his on, on his own cultural terms, I think it is a I think it is a mistake to assume that West Africans have a lower standard for their fathers and their husbands than anyone else. And so I think that Penguin Press is calling him a failed husband because he walked out on his kids and didn't call them for 10 weeks and bankrupted the family and then came back asking where they went with nary an explanation. I would call him a failure for those reasons too. And so I think that this notion that an Eve father, a Fanti father, a Yoruba father would not consider himself a failure having abandoned his children is errant. I don't, I'm not suggesting that's what you're saying, no, but that's no, how no, I feel. A failed
4: father is a failed father, and I mean, that's universal. Um, but I was
1: it's certainly universal from the perspective of a child, and I think it's certainly universal from the perspective of a wife. So I was just curious
4: if there was any kind of expectation of, you know... Commitment? No, just from just different cultures. Having, having been romantically involved with women who are Ashanti and women who are Yoruba, they're very different. I mean they may they both they may be both driven, but Yoruba women because they're the, the fam- Nigerians and Ghanaians are different. I mean there's there's tension between N- Nigerians and
1: Ghanaians, you know? Let's follow up after the talk. <laughs> i I'd, I'd love to talk to you further about that.
2: Hi, my name is Roslyn. Hi, Rosalind. And um, it has been truly wonderful listening to you. And I have to tell you, I can't wait to read the book, but I would much rather listen to you <laughs> read that entire book. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Thank you. From, um, Thank you. Um,
2: and bringing you greetings from my dear friend, Cheryl Gregory Faye.
1: Aww. Um, just- Do you know that her mother is here in the first row? Hi, Auntie Makita. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I love Baltimore. (laughs) Other questions or comments? Yes, please.
3: Hi, um, my name is Toyin, and um, I'm actually a Nigerian. And um, I know you're half Nigerian, Ghanaian. And the title is really intriguing. I don't know if you guys know about, you know, the history of Ghanaians and Nigerians. There's some kind of tension sometimes, mostly because of the soccer, you know. (laughs) So I was, yeah, football, as we call it. So I was wondering if you came up with the title yourself, and if you did, if you had some concerns about, you know, if it would create some tension. Because I know the book is not about, Ghana must go, you know, as they call it, but do you have concerns about the title and what kind of friction it'll create in mm-hmm. between?
1: I them. should explain what Toyin is referencing is the fact that in nineteen eighty three the Nigerian government um, you know known for being level-headed and reasonable in all in all cases, <laughs> summarily dismissed over two million immigrants from from the country, most of whom were Ghanaian and as um you'll notice that I say we Nigerians. And we Ganyans. <laughs> so as we were packing up and fleeing, this is, um, January, February, 1983. Um, the, those expelled had to put their belongings in these bags made out of a, a plaid plastic imported in the grand tradition of globalization from China. Now, um, used by Louis Vuitton and Céline for their bags. Footnote. Anyway, so the Ghanaians leave with their things in these plastic bags and as they go, the Nigerians, known for being level-headed calm people, taunt Ghana go home or Ghana must go. And so the bags that the Ghanaians were carrying became known as Ghana must go bags. But the it's interesting. So Twain's question makes sense. Do I worry that I'm sort of stirring, you know, um, international tensions? And um, to be honest... Um, having a Ghanaian father and a Nigerian mother, I'm so used to those tensions being stirred <laughs> that I don't i don't think it... But there, are, there are things that worry me about this novel that is not for most amongst them. But um, more to the point, I think that the way in which Ghanians, upon return to their own country, which was um, recovering from a very violent coup, the way in which Ghanians... And, and this happens oft, I find, in human history take this term which was applied to them in a derogatory manner and make it their own and say, okay, these are Ghana must go bags and we're going to continue calling them Ghana must go bags in our own country and in many ways neuter the term of its negative power. This is something that human beings do that I find phenomenal and formidable. And if I may say, I think that we brown human beings are particularly adept at doing this. So taking something that was meant to oppress and saying, all right, we'll take that, but it's gonna be ours. And now, of course, in Ghana, which is um, enjoying, we just last week celebrated our independence, the first African nation state to enjoy independence. Now, of course, we, we say, Nigeria must go because there are a lot of Nigerians coming to Accra to enjoy the benefits of um, governance without violence. Um, again, a different topic, perhaps for a different talk. But Toyin, you no, know, I'm I'm not so worried about bringing these fissures and tensions and complexities and, and what you reference these distinctions to light. Not at all. They can only continue to to um, trouble us if we let them. Please, oh. Sorry, I'll let...
0: Good evening.
4: Good evening. My name is Jerome Banks-Bay. Nice to meet you, Jerome. You just mentioned that those were, that was one of the least of the things that worried you about the <laughs> novel.
5: Yeah.
4: I was just curious to know what are some of the things that worry you about the novel.
1: <laughs> Fair enough, Jerome. Thank you for asking. I, um, these, these characters came to me, as I said, in, in a, as a gift. And I knew, and I still know, that their stories are their own. But their lives, their jobs, where they work, where they go to school, these details bear striking resemblance to the lives of my family members. So my father is um, from Ghana, and he's a surgeon. My mother is Nigerian, um, and she is a pediatrician, but she also raises tropical flowers. My twin sister, as mentioned, went to... Hopkins and um Harvard Med, as does the eldest son Olu. Um the youngest Sadie goes to Yale, as did my sister and I. And um other than that, no similarities. <laughs> so my greatest concern, Jerome, was that my family members would see these surface similarities. And they're that. I you know, I chose these schools because I know the names of the streets that that surround them and the buildings, and I chose these professions because I have never performed a surgery in my life and God willing will never have to know some of the details of the surgeries that I've heard my sister describe so I chose these details or they chose themselves I think for very practical reasons but my greatest fear was that my family would read this book and think that I was talking about them and I you know I teased them as anyone in my family knows, I don't have any problem talking. You know, I'm going to I'll tell my family what I think. I joked with them a novel is a lot of trouble to go through just to tell your dad you're mad. <laughs> so, you know, I know in my heart and soul that this is not a letter to my family, but I feared that they may that they may have thought it was. And indeed, my mother took a very long time to finish it, and when she did, she said I was afraid that I would be sort of reading about myself. But indeed I was not. As soon as I gave these characters a chance and, and got to know them, and it happened quickly, she said, I realized that they are they are almost human beings unto themselves. And I say that Ghana Moscow is not my story. I have a very interesting story, which is probably better suited to soap opera than literary fiction. <laughs> but this this is not it. This story belongs to the size.
2: I wanted to ask a question. Of course, I'm, Judy. Uh, I'm Judy. Um <laughs> You know, it's been reported in the press that um, you received a contract based on the first 100 pages of the book or a 100 pages of writing, and I was just curious as to were these the first 100 pages of the book or? Yes, they were. The
1: first the first 100 pages of the book um, compromise part one. The novel is in three parts. Part one is gone. Part two is going, and part three is go. And I submitted part one, gone to my agent, and he um, mercifully decided to represent me and magically sold it to my my editor and got off in, in the deal that you read about.
2: Well, that's a wonderful accomplishment. Congratulations. It was
1: a huge blessing, to say the least.
3: Hi, my name is Michelle. I have a couple of questions. I read that you like photography, and your reading was very pictorial, very descriptive, and I was wondering whether or not in your shower you were picturing all these or visualizing this in, in a pictorial or phot- photography fashion and uh and this is what you describe because it's very very descriptive and the second question i'm 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 pro women in movement as well and i like strong women and i always refer to the strength of women families or in families come from grandmothers mm-hmm. are you referring to grandparents or grandmothers in your book
1: uh two excellent questions so the first one is easy to answer i if i weren't a writer i would only be a photographer i um I find the world to be an exquisitely beautiful place every day. I um I consider it a blessing that my eye is constantly drawn to some moment, some form, some shape, some interaction that that I that I just find exquisitely gorgeous. And so at a very young age when we still had the like yellow Kodak disposable cameras <laughs> and he used to bring them to have the pictures developed, I started taking pictures. And I've now um, upgraded to a really fancy digital camera that I can't really use. (laughs) So I call myself a professional autofocus photographer. And um, it is absolutely the case that when I'm writing, I think that the visual is as important to me as the verbal, but so too is the auditory. So music and imagery are the two things perhaps strangely, that I think most inform my writing style. Um, So I'm, I'm grateful that you picked up on that. It's absolutely the case. As for grandmothers, it's interesting. The parents in this novel, Kweku and Fola, have rather fractured or interrupted relationships with their own parents. So Fola's mother has died giving birth to her, and Kweku's mother he he leaves at 16 years old in order to pursue his education and i um i couldn't agree with you more i think to your larger point i do believe that strong women beget strong women the whatever strength i manifest in my person i didn't learn on my own i received it from my mother who received it from our ancestors who um, received it from god and so that is the case. In this particular novel, for these particular people, parents are, are a bit absent and I think it shows. I think the ways in which Kweku was not fathered, for example, and the ways in which Folo wasn't mothered render them insecure about their abilities to parent. But of course by the end what they've discovered is that they didn't need training, they didn't need an example per se, all they needed was to be themselves and to love. Sure. Yeah, all the way in the, in the back.
3: Thank you very much for um, for the reading. It's quite beautiful, and I Thank look you. forward to reading the uh, the novel. Um, you and Chimamande Adichie mm-hmm. seem to be setting a new um, a new bar or a new direction in terms of um, women of African descent, particularly West African women who are writing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted I wanted to ask you if, in fact, you have stepped back from the tradition of Ama'ata and and mm-hmm. others, um, or if you have been influenced by them in, in another way, Mariama Ba, etc., those mm-hmm. type of women who are also um, looking at African women in context and also outside of it and what those influences um, are upon you but also what you see um, differently from uh, from what they saw.
1: Yeah. Your, your name? Your name? Ma'am? Deirdre. Deirdre, It's an excellent question. Um, two things. I think when when we think of what, I'll speak specifically of West African novelists, we have to um, place them, us, in socio-political and historical context. So those novelists who are working in at the, from the end of the 50s through the 60s and the 70s are working in a robustly, in, in an immediately post-colonial moment and writing in English in Nigeria and Ghana at a time when African and West African scholars have not been given their due, and so the novelist in that moment, I think, is a, is in many ways appropriated by the political movement, and met, which is a shame, but is, it also makes perfect sense. I mean, I think about a novel like The Bride Price or Things Fall Apart, which stand on their own as works of literature but end up being taught in history classes and political science classes and sociology classes because this is what we have access to. And, and I understand that and I don't know that the writers working in that tradition, I can't speak on their behalf. I certainly stand on their shoulders, but I can't speak on their behalf. I don't know that they would have chosen for that to happen, but so it went. And I think this is true um, also if we look at literature coming out of the Harlem Renaissance. There are some novelists who wish for their work to to have an actively political voice. And then there are others who say, I'm a poet, full stop. And it's okay. We need to allow um, the the artist to choose whether he or she wishes to also be um, a, a, a political activist, an activist. But the West doesn't always give the brown artist that choice. And so I think what happens when you move into the 80s and the 90s and now in the 21st century, you find um, West African novelists writing writing in English but also in French who are willing to say, this for me is a novel about human beings. One, one reviewer said that she felt that my project was to particularize the African experience for a Western audience, and I laughed because I thought, isn't it the work of every novelist to particularize the human experience? I mean, how did it become my unique project? First of all, to particularize the African experience, which I couldn't point to it. If if you could show me where it is, that'd be great, but also for a Western audience. I thought to myself, listen. It is hard enough for me to do what I have devoted my life to, which is creating beautiful prose, to wake up in the morning and open my MacBook Air and just get that done without thinking, you know, good morning, Western audience. <laughs> I would like to speak to you of my African truths. I mean, it doesn't happen. And no one would assume that that was my project, excuse me, if I were a Caucasian male novelist. And so, you know, I say, I say that to, to establish the exterior world in which the novelist is working but also to say that I think those who have committed themselves to literature are working with interior stuff. That's what we do. Now that having been said, there are now and there have always been West African novelists who are more drawn to what I call a classical tradition and I would put a Chebe in that category and those that are drawn to a more radical experimental tradition and I would put Shoyinka in that category. And I think that when you look at what's happening now with writers, um, t- with ties to, to the African continent, you see the same thing. There's the work of t- an author like Teju Cole, there's the work of an author like Uzo Iwela, there's the work of Chimimanda, and then there's work like mine. And I don't think of them, if we judge them um, in literary terms, as the same. And that brings me, I think, to a final and fundamental point which I've I've um I never tire of making which is that this notion of African literature indeed any kind of continental literature is specious it's empty we don't speak of asian music or american music it wouldn't mean anything to say that i was listening to this american music the other day and i mean you would it would you would it would behoove you to ask for further information And I say, music has, I think, run ahead of literature in this regard because we speak about the sound. And when I write, as, um, as you've probably noticed, I write for the sound. And so I want my work, not that I shy away from the extent to which my work deals with West African people, because it does, and that's what I am, and I'm happy for that. But I deal with these subjects in a way that is firmly rooted in music and in sound and in art. And I'm unwilling to assume a job that is given to me by someone outside of me which would have me representing an entire continent with my literature. That is... um,
2: Okay, Taya, I think we're going to have one last question, and your Nigerian friend here has said it will be very brief. <laughs> but is, there, is there anyone?
4: I'm Yoruba American, my only question is if, is if you could expand or explain to me in the audience what and who is an Afropolitan.
1: Yes, with pleasure. Thank you. I, I will I will answer that question, but this young woman had her hand raised for a very long time. Can I take her question as well? Do you guys mind if I take her question as well? Okay, and then I'll tell you what an Afropolitan is. Hi, Ty. Hi. I, um... Your name, please. Dawn. Hi, Dawn. <laughs> this is the wife of Westmore. Well,
5: that's... Yes, you. as well
1: as... The wonderful dawn flight. Wow!
5: I just first want to say, um, so happy that you are here in Baltimore. We can't thank you enough Aww. for making us part of your stop. Um, we are so proud, and when I say we, I speak for Baltimore, but I speak for the Moore family um, because you know you're just an amazing woman. I, I, full disclosure, do know her very personally. And the beauty that you see truly is unmatched with the friendship that she provides. I mean, she's Mm -hmm. an amazing woman.
1: this waterproof mascara doesn't have a money-back guarantee, <laughs> so keep your sentimental comments to a bare minimum, please. Actually, you can just take her mic. Just keep So my, my very
5: quick question is, um, and I apologize because I was a few minutes late. I'm with my boss here, um, and he wanted to come to this, so we, we came here together. But uh, my very quick question was, as I believe I did uh, read this, that you had experienced some writer's block. Hmm. And I want to know how you got it back to write this yeah. beautiful piece of work.
1: Okay, it's a wonderful question, Mrs. Moore. <laughs> Don and I are very intimately linked, particularly by my writing, because when I met Wes, her husband at Oxford, he was still in the um, process of wooing her. To be his wife, and so he he heard told that there was a one who could help him with his emails, and so he came one rainy night. There were many in Oxford to my room and said, "And this is, I mean, like, hey, T, um, can you help me write this email to this woman?" I was like, um, "Indeed, I can. Can you tell me some things about her?" And he said, "Well, she's kind of like, if you think about, like, she she is." like a Condoleezza Rice or a Susan. Like she's a genius, but then she looks like Beyonce. So she's kind of like, perfect. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, all right, I'm gonna have to really get out the thesaurus, really stretch my wrists here. So I was like, tell me, use your words. Tell me what you want to express. And um, as he has now since confessed, so I am not blowing up his spot, I, um, I did, Don, write those early emails to you. So I do feel a certain bond knowing that my, my finest literary works have resulted in the most beautiful girl. Her name is Mia. Yes. Okay. So that having been said, writer's block. Writer's block. Um, all blocks of any kind I think to creativity, are a matter of stopping a flow. So, as I said, I think any, you know, you you figure out pretty quickly that you're not smart enough to get it done yourself. You just have to be open to the flow. But when there is fear, it will sit like a dam in the middle of that river. And this is what happened to me. I went to some very good schools for which I just last week finished paying. (laughs) Someone asked me the other day, Do, I heard that you have degrees from Yale and Oxford. I was like, I have them, but I haven't actually paid for them yet. So it's, you know, me and Sally may sort of have them together. But um, yes, I went to these schools and I graduated, I say, with an abundance of confidence and a paucity of courage. I had absolute faith in my ability to garner approval and none in my ability to use my own voice. And so the first writer's block that I experienced was just my fear of bringing my creative work into the the world of the judged. And so I didn't write. I didn't write in college. I didn't really write in grad school because I was afraid that I would get a bad grade. That I got over Eventually, and I wrote these one hundred pages, I sent them to Andrew as we've said, and then I got this two book deal. And then another writer's block came, because I believe you just keep getting taught the same lesson until you learn it. And this was to do with the opposite fear. Now there was this fear that I had gotten the praise, but every word I wrote I asked myself, Is this worth a two book deal? Is this does this will this will I let everybody down? And what I had to do, Don, was I had to move out of New York, remove myself from distraction, remove myself from the noise, and I ended up in Rome, a very pretty city where I didn't speak the language. And somehow I think in in learning the learning the Italian language, but indeed learning any language again, starting from the very beginning, I was returned to my my original love, which is language, which is the language. And in re-experiencing as if for the first time the the childlike wonder at the way words work in that process i found my way back to to fiction because it wasn't through i was not walking down the path of approval i was not trotting the road of achievement but i was only working in my love of art which i was born with which was given to me and which is a blessing and so i began to think of it less as what what am i writing and more of what needs to be said through me. And that's what that's what um, that's what restored me to my original, my original joy, my first love. An Afropolitan, yes. sir, I uh, described in a two thousand and five essay, Bye bye, Babar," or what is an Afropolitan?" And I, I was simply saying that there are those of us who have incredibly intimate ties to the African continent to countries and cultures that originate there, and also, and I take pains not to say but, which sometimes the media says, and it pisses me off, they're like, these people are African, but they're smart and they're sophisticated, as if the two things are naturally diametrically opposed. So let me be very clear, African and Afropolitan and globally minded this is how I've conceived the Afropolitan. and there's nothing in my conception that would exclude African-Americans, there's nothing in my conception that would exclude South Americans or people living in Africa or outside of Africa and um, I'm happy what has happened, what has become of that article because it has broadened what has been a very narrow and monochromatic conversation about the continent to include those of us who proudly identify as African and global and culturally in tune. And so that's what I meant by Afropolitan. The word, of course, has been taken as as they should be. That's why you write them. And it's been applied to all sorts of things. But I would call a good number of you here today, including that redhead right there, my best friend, Afropolitans for sure. Thank you
2: Thank you so much, it's been a real pleasure having you here in Baltimore and we're very happy that you came. Um, The Ivy Bookshop is outside in the hallway, they have lots of books for sale and Ty is going to be at the end of the hall um, by the humanities department and you'll have a chance to chat with her and get your book signed and ask her more questions.
1: Thank you so much.